Hello, fellow nerds. Check out our network site, nerdsloth.com. You can also connect with us on social media like the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram. If you like what you hear, look for Nerdsloth on Patreon and consider donating to help us continue delivering quality shows straight to your ears. If you'd like to help the shows out for free, head over to iTunes and write a heartfelt review. I mean it. Make me cry happy tears. But seriously, though, anything you can do really helps us out and we love you for it. Hello, I am Jay Jacob Barker. Jay is just fine, and you're listening to Adrian Has Issues. Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues, special edition NYC. I've talked about it on the show quite a bit, but it is uh, Reed Pop, the company that runs uh, New York Comic Con. It was a smaller sister con, like, which is basically a Comic Con, but strictly comic books. And today's guest, I met there, he is, let's see, you're a filmmaker, executive editor on a really awesome book called The Devil's Doing Dreary. I've talked to you almost at every other con since then, and I feel so bad that it's taking you so long to be on the show. Um, but you're a producer, and let's see, you worked on, uh, let's see, Hairspray and uh, Five Star, which I did catch, which is a fantastic movie. Thank you. Please welcome Daryl Freimark. Daryl, how are you, man? Good. How you doing, Adrian? I'm doing great. Like, I, I feel so bad. Like, I had asked you to do like a little bumper for our podcast originally which not too long after we had all those recorded uh the show kind of went in a different direction so a lot of those that i got a special edition unfortunately never got used and i'm like oh man it was really cool to have you on and (laughs) we didn't even get a chance to use it no worries As we're recording this, like we're down to the wire because tonight is uh, Game Seven of the World Series and the Chicago Cubs. Uh, this is the first time they've been there since what? Uh, the first time they've been in the series since I think nineteen what was it nineteen fifty four something like that. It's, it's it's been a long time since they've been there, and the first time uh, the last time they won the World Series was nineteen oh eight. Which uh, oh crap! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like my grandparents weren't even born yet. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. Mine neither, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you're obviously making fantastic moves because you know we follow each other on Facebook. And when I first met you, I knew you mostly from the comic book, which is uh, "Devil Is Doing Dreary," which you are the the executive editor on that. So if you will, would you mind giving maybe a little bit of a, a synopsis for people who may not know, and also how you got involved in the project? Sure. So I'll start with the synopsis. So The Devil is Doing Dreary tells the story of a town called Dreary that has been living in fear of a prophecy that if two strangers show up in the town on the third day till spring, the devil will follow at their heels and drag the people of the town to hell. And, uh, you know, before you start thinking that this town is just a batshit crazy town, uh, <laughs> basically, uh, this is a prophecy that was passed down from the preacher of the town on his deathbed to his 10-year-old son. And then we fast forward 55 years. His 10-year-old son is now the 65-year-old preacher in the town. And the town has been living in fear of this prophecy every year. So they spent 364 days waiting for that third day till spring. And when the devil doesn't arrive, they start waiting again the next day. 
uh, and the town has become, you know, uh, fairly destitute. You know, phone lines are down, cars are down. There's no, there's no gas left in the town, so nobody really goes in or out of the town. So we don't even know what year this is, really, because there's uh, no modern technology, and the town has decided that they're so doomed that they've stopped having children. So the youngest person in town is a 19-year-old girl, and our two strangers, as we'll call them, are. Uh, just two guys, Jack and Tino, who happen to be driving by the town when they run into some car trouble and pull into the town and their car breaks down and they ask for help. And of course, the town reacts as if these are the guys that are bringing the devil. And of course, Jack and Tino are like, what did we just roll into? What <laughs> the hell? Which, of course, <laughs> not a good thing to say on this day. Uh, so yeah, so it's, one of the things that really drew me to it was the idea of the cult mentality. That, you know, people can just start following something basically out of fear. And, you know, you, you I mean, you see that right now, right? The fear mongering of uh, Donald Trump. You know, it's just like people are fearful. They, they find somebody who tells them something and they kind of glom behind them. And, and that's what happened here. And the preacher is doing it out of love for his town. Love, you know, the town that his father built and uh, his sister lives in. And, uh, you know, I don't think he has bad intent at first, but it's obviously gone pretty bad. And of course, our two strangers may not be exactly what they seem. This isn't as straightforward as town gone crazy, two guys in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's other stuff going on. So it's all kind of a uh, countdown to the sun coming up the next morning. And, you know, are these guys bringing the devil? Who's who? Who's guilty? Who's not? And, uh, and where are we all going to wind up? I read that book a while ago, and I loved every minute of it. And you're right about the fear-mongering, because, you know, it wasn't too long before that, you know, between, let's say, Y2K, and then that was, what, 2012? That was when the world was supposed to end again? Yeah, right. You know, see, like, every couple of years, someone would kept resetting the clock, like, oh, wait, uh, the prophecy says it's this date now. And I'm like, all right, make up your minds. When's it going to be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, I, you know, I think that's been throughout time, and, Obviously, like when you look at at cults and why cults have been successful, I mean, I don't know that cults are successful long term, but why cults have, you know, success for periods of time, it's because people are fearful and they find some sort of comfort in somebody telling them that, you know, this is the way to be and this is what to avoid. Uh, so, and honestly, I'm not a religious person and I don't mean to offend anybody who is religious, but I think a lot of religion is like that. I mean, it's the cult mentality of like, well, if I follow this religion, if I follow this you know, whatever this scripture might be, then all will be okay. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I think you live your life and just trying to do the right thing that inherently you feel is the right thing and make, makes other people feel good. Um, but, you know, sorry, I don't mean to get preachy. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And I think it lends a lot to, you know, the story itself, because you're right. I mean, again, I'm not trying to necessarily, you know, punch holes in anybody's religion, because believe me, I'm not doing that. But yet, you like to think that at least most fates are obviously meant to be uplifting and whatnot. But, you know, let's be real. I mean, we see it, you know, you said, you know, as far as our politics go, where it's funny how certain things get taken to a weird extreme, depending on who's interpreting it. So, you know, and I, I think we see that all across the board. So, you know, believe me, I'm not trying to, like I said, offend, but, you know, it's it happens. It happens a lot, and it's kind of scary. Yeah, absolutely. I think I left one of your uh, questions unanswered, because I think you also asked how I got involved in the project. So... Uh, the writer, whose name is David Parkin, uh, originally wrote this as a screenplay. And, you know, I'm a film producer. That's my, my initial background. And, you know, 
back in 2008, I was reading screenplays for uh, IFP, uh, which is an organization, in the, uh, the Independent Film Project. I believe that's what it stands for. And IFP is an organization that helps to support you know, young filmmakers and trying to put screenplays together with producers and agents and financing and, and all the things you need to do to get your movies made. Uh, and I read a bunch of screenplays, and one of the ones that I read was David's, and I thought it was fantastic. So when I met with him and told him how much I liked the script and that I wanted to try to make it into uh, into a film, and we started to work together, we decided, you know what, it made a lot of sense to take a step back and make it into a comic book first. And neither one of us had any experience in making comic books. Uh, David is an avid comic book reader. I'm not as much, but uh, <laughs> the two of us put our heads together and. I mean, gosh, I, get, I, I realize as I start to tumble into this story, this could go on forever and ever, but uh, I make the long story short that we spent a lot of time researching, talking to people, finding a publishing company, figuring out what it takes to put a comic book together, running two Kickstarter campaigns, hiring artists, overseeing the work, building the comic book, watching the distribution, chasing a few dollars, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and I personally find that fascinating because... You know, like you said, you come from a film background, and as I'm going through comic books, and especially when it comes to indie comics, and getting the stories of how people get their comics made, I see a lot of parallels as far as movies go. You know, it's not like you have this major backing, so, you know, from an independent level, you really have to then kind of do even that much more work in terms of making sure that all the moving parts are going smoothly and making sure, like I said, the money's right, that your creative team's in place. So I think that it actually helps out because, like I said, you have a film background. I think that gives you a little bit of an edge, at least as I think so. You know, I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and it's funny because, you know, you, you called me the executive editor, which is the, you know, the title that I have in the book. And we gave me that title because... When we all sat down and figured out what what is what is Daryl doing on this, and there wasn't something that necessarily existed in the comic book world, so we felt oh, executive editor works. But in hindsight, I was the producer. It was exactly what I do on my films. I found the money, I put together the talent, I oversaw the creative process, I made sure that distribution was happening correctly. You know, I yelled at people who made mistakes and then apologized for yelling later. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it's funny you should say that. I'll never forget it as a kid, and it's a weird reference, but I remember there was an episode of Muppet Babies, uh, the cartoon, where they were trying to make a movie. I think they were going to do like a parody of Star Wars, and everybody was basically trying to figure out what they were going to do, and you know, Kermit said he was going to be the director, and then <laughs> Piggy's like, well, I'm going to be the producer, and he's like, well, what does a producer do? And she's like, they fire directors! <laughs> And for and for the longest time, I honestly thought it's like, oh man, producers must be like the meanest people. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think producers do get a uh, a bit of a bad rap. You know, there was what was that movie, Swimming with Sharks? That uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, there there are some pretty bad producers out there, I'm sure. But um, you know, we're we're just same as same as anybody involved in a creative field. We're just trying to make something that people will enjoy and that will uh will make some money and not just you know for us but often to get your investors their money back or you know to keep a company afloat like you know it's, it's not just about trying to get rich on it it's just trying to trying to stay alive on it with so many things going on you need somebody to obviously wrangle that together and needless to say that could be pretty hectic i'd imagine yeah no ab absolutely and you know this this project i mean every project i've ever done poses tons of challenges but you know this project had 
uh, I feel its own unique challenges, you know, without throwing anybody under the bus, there are just, there are things that we often run into where people were late on deadlines or, you know, just didn't do what they said they were going to do. And I don't think people are doing it out of, you know, malintent, but everybody has so much going on in their lives. And, you know, when you're working on a, on something like this, where you're working because of the passion and there's very little money involved in it, you know, I understand it's like, well, I, I got to do, you know, project A, B, and C so I can feed my kids and my passion project's just going to have to wait. But then, you know, kind of, kind of screws everybody else over who's trying to stay on a schedule. And that was where I often, you know, have to call people and be like, skip your kid's soccer game tonight and finish what you said you're going to finish. And I know, I know I'm a jerk. And I know your wife hates me, but just do it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> got to make a deadline. <laughs> But yeah, like that's that's crazy, and I want to really get into your film stuff because it's like I know you from the comic, but then obviously as we got to talking, you know, through various cons and then you know through social networking, you know, I was like, oh shoot, I'm like the comics are like the the least interesting part of it. No offense. <laughs> so <laughs> no, not done taken. How was it that I guess you got started in the film industry because you've been in it for quite a while? So I graduated from college. I'd written a screenplay. And I wanted to get involved with filmmaking from that side of things. And I went to L.A. with my screenplay in my satchel (laughs) or (laughs) on my hard drive. And I literally took two meetings with the only two people I knew in town. And I knew them through other people. I didn't even know them personally. And uh, the advice I was given was, you know, find a a job in the film industry, learn how the film industry works, and just keep writing. I literally just reached out to a lot of my different contacts my first jobs simultaneous jobs in the film industry were as an intern for a company called october films that was in its last three months of existence before it became usa films which then later on became focus features uh which is you know a big indie film company today so october films was uh uh i got that job because one of my friends from high school gave piano lessons to one of the heads of october films daughters and he was like, he made an introduction and that guy, John Schmidt, got me an internship. He said, yeah, come on in. We'll get you an internship. So I spent three months at that company. Simultaneously, I was uh, working for a producer named Anthony Rulin, who was producing a movie called O, which was a modern day version of Othello. And the reason I got that job was because Anthony had another assistant who was, uh, whose father bought watches from my cousin who sold watches. Oh, wow. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> so, yeah. So my cousin said, oh, one of my uh, buyers uh, has a son in the film industry. And I met that guy, uh, John Rosenblum. And John met me and he said, oh, I'll, I'll tell Anthony uh, he should bring you on a couple of days a week. So I was working for Anthony doing that a couple of days a week. And then uh, uh, I went to a Vassar alumni event and I met this guy, Bobby Friedman. And Bobby was running television and marketing at New Line. And uh, I think I wrote him a letter because this is back when not everybody had email. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think I did not have email for about a year after I graduated college. Uh, so I think I wrote Bobby a letter and just said, Hey, I'd, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a screenwriter. I'd love, I'd love to meet with you. And Bobby said, yeah, come on in. My, uh, my assistant just sold a screenplay and his assistant had just sold uh, final destination. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> hadn't even gotten made yet. And so I sat down with, uh, Jeffrey Reddick who had written that script and Jeffrey said, yeah, come be an assistant here because, you know, all the assistants here are writing screenplays. So I wound up being like a, an on-call temp for about a year or so there. And, and then I got hired full-time at New Line. And I wound up working eight years in New Line Cinema, where I, I started out in the home entertainment department, uh, working 
you know, nine to six. And then from six to 10, I sat around and I wrote on my screenplays. And uh, I befriended this guy, Mark Kaufman, who uh, was working in development and production and working on a bunch of different movies at the time. And Mark said, you know, why don't you come work with me in development and production? And I was like, sure. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I mean, it wasn't that easy at all, but it was just Mark and I developed a friendship and uh, Mark thought that I'd be an interesting creative partner for him. And it was an unbelievable opportunity that I probably never would have had other, other than this relationship. And so I went and I worked with Mark and that led me to being a co-producer on Hairspray, which was, uh, you know, an amazing experience. Like, you know, that I basically was involved in that project from taking it from the stage show to the screenplay, hiring the director, you know, hiring the producers and, you know, just being involved in every step of the way on that. And, when I left New Line in uh, fall of 2007, you know, Hairspray had just come out and had been a huge success and it just opened a lot of doors for me. So that was that was great. You know, so that, that was the background of it all. And, and actually, when I left New Line, I thought for a little while that I would try to go back to writing, but it just didn't fit my personality anymore. Just uh, I wasn't somebody who could sit in a room alone and try to create like that for hours on end. Like I'm just too much of a people person yeah because that gets crazy at the yeah <laughs> i mean good good for you all you writers out there who who can do that it it, it made me nuts <laughs> i just imagine like just being almost kind of like a horror movie it's like you're in this room and you just start slowly going insane and yet <laughs> as you're going crazy you pretty much wrote like the the next great horror classic <laughs> it's like jacob's ladder but with screenwriting <laughs> well i i actually did something very similar so I knew right away I didn't want to be writing at home. So, uh, you know, this is back in 2007 when everybody was working out of coffee shops. I think there's less of that now, or at least I noticed it less. But it was like in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, every third block, there was a coffee shop with Wi-Fi. You could buy a $1.50 cup of coffee and sit there for eight hours. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people did. So I, I was so excited to, like, grow my hair long, grow out a beard and wear flip-flops every day and go to the coffee shop. And I did that for a few months and <laughs> I was working on uh, a couple of different scripts. And then I suddenly had this idea and I, I think I called it a coffee shop vagabond. And it was about a guy writing a screenplay in a coffee shop and going crazy. And then I realized like how ridiculous that I was writing that script was. And I, I think that was right about the time. And I'm like, all right, I, I'm getting way too much into my own head and whatever the heck meta means. And I, I need to get away from this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's funny though. At least you own up to the fact that, it's like, look, I don't have the right temperament for it, and I'm also someone who, you know, how they say, like, you know, obviously you gotta do it every day. And I remember for years doing those things, like, oh, tips on how to write and how to do screenplays. All the tips were find the nice, quiet area, and I'm like, I can't do that. Like even now, like when I'm editing, like either there's music behind me or like there's like a really bad martial arts movie on Netflix. Like that whole idea of just sitting down in a quiet, secluded area, like it's just, I don't know, creativity doesn't flow for me that way. So I, I'd imagine at least, you know, to some degree, it seems to kind of be that same way for you. But yet, you know, sometimes you just have to be doing something. Yeah, I mean, I, I like a bit of quiet. Um, I like when the coffee shops tended to just be relatively quiet. But yeah, the complete silence or to me, it's even just like complete being alone is what's hard. I mean, I, I go to an office every day now and, you know, it's a 20 minute walk from my house, but I sat at home at just 
it, you know, tried to do my work at home. It just drives me crazy. And there are days when I will stay home, you know, for maybe the morning. Right. And I usually just like, I never feel like my brain's quite clicking the way I need it to be clicking. Yeah, and not for nothing, though. I mean, I, I grew up in Northeast New Jersey, and you're a New York guy. It's like, what have we ever known quiet? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, even because um, uh, my best friend, uh, he and his wife, you know, they live in, uh, I guess, Sussex County in Jersey. You know, it's very, like, rural. And I remember when I was first going up there, I'd crash on the couch after a party, and just, I'm like, I heard nothing. Like, you almost don't even hear birds or, like, crickets, but I was like, I cannot do this. So I would basically just, like, make sure my MP3 player was charged up and sleep to that. And then, you know, coming out to Long Island with my girlfriend earlier this year, you know, it's much more quiet here than where I grew up. Because, well, you don't hear as many sirens and, you know, the occasional gunfire, but (laughs) we're not too far from a highway. So now it's like, okay, I finally got used to the quiet, but apparently I guess they just do drag racing on a freeway. Oh, wow. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Yeah, because all of a sudden you just hear like these vehicles just like the engines just ripping. And I'm like, okay, I sincerely hope they're at least maybe filming one of the Fast and Furious movies behind our house. Uh, so yeah, like I can't do quiet either. I I'm totally with you on that. Yeah, my apartment uh, is pretty close to the freeway, and uh, and yeah, I, I mean where I grew up, you always heard voices outside, people yelling, cars backfiring. You know, back when lots of cars backfired, and <laughs> it, the complete science always freaks me out a bit. But yeah, my office, you know, is a pretty active place, and I like when it's quiet when there's nobody there. But you know, it's I can still get up and walk around and be in like the main building and see other people and it just it's important to have something going on or at least for me right. but anyway <laughs> so i wanted to talk to you because um i remember when this project first came up because i know we you know probably on our facebook or whatnot and i finally got around to seeing it so i really wanted to like pick your brain a little bit about five star because i know that was one that got a lot of big acclaim and you were uh part of so i don't know if you want to speak about your experiences in getting that movie uh made sure i mean five star five star was great i'll back up for a second so after I left New Line Cinema and I was, you know, focusing on writing for a minute and then I, I went into indie producing and uh, the first movie that I produced was a movie called Allegiance. And when that movie premiered uh, at a film festival, it premiered at the Seattle International Film Festival in a small section with a couple of other American made films. At the film festival, I bonded with Keith Miller, who wrote and directed a movie called Welcome to Pine Hill. That was his first film. And at, uh, at the end of the festival, he said to me, you know, I'd love to have you produce my next film. And I was excited by the, by it. And I read the script and I was like, you know, what, Keith, I'm in the middle of, uh, I'm in the middle of producing a movie right now. It was called some velvet morning. And when do you want to, I think this was in June of, uh, of 2012, maybe. Uh, so I'm like, when do you want to shoot this? And Keith said, August. I said, Oh geez, Keith, I'm, <laughs> I'm the, literally like <laughs> Cut a little closer, buddy. Yeah. Like I'm going to finish the third week of June. And you want me to start in August? And I'm like, can we start any later? And he's like, nope, I'm a professor at uh, NYU and I'm going to need to be, you know, back at school and we need to shoot in August. So it, it was kind of like one of those things where you either just make it happen or you walk away from it. Right. And I, it's funny. I think my first instinct was like, I better walk away from this. But then one of the things about being a producer is you do just make things happen. Somebody once told me being a producer is just making the impossible possible. And, you know, so when <laughs> when I thought about it a little further, I was like, you know, Keith, I'm really excited to work with you. I love the script and I want to make it happen. So 
we lean very heavily on our lawyer, Jonathan Gray, who's this amazing independent film lawyer. And Jonathan kind of helped us structure the project so that, you know, we can make it for, for as little as possible and as soon as possible and, and figure out things after the shoot and, uh, that nobody would be in trouble for anything. And, uh, he really, he guided us in so many great ways. And, you know, we had wonderful talents. Uh, Primo is, uh, was not a professional actor and, you know, this is his first acting gig and he was just very excited to, to be a part of it and very dedicated and willing to do whatever. And, uh, John, uh, had been trained as an actor, but this is, you know, his first feature film and, he was also very excited and dedicated. So he's had a lot of people um, who really wanted to make this project happen and would do it at, at all costs. Keith is part of a collective called the Brooklyn Film Collective, and which I'm not a part of. But uh, all these people are, are filmmakers who all work on each other's films. And, you know, I, I was actually not a part of these decisions at all. But I think Keith just leaned heavily on that group. And a number of people came out. I mean, we had, I think it times we had as many as four different cameras going and you know just getting shots from all angles and it's just one of those things where you're like okay i need to you know get this scene on the beach and i need to do it before the sun comes up and i've got four hours so we're just going to deploy all these cameras and we're going to shoot from every angle and you know we'll worry in post-production about you know how to deal with the cameraman walks into the shot how to edit around that and whatever and um everyone everyone just worked really well together and Keith as a director was also really amazing because he would, he would just roll cameras for, you know, 30, 45 minutes. So, you know, he'd roll right through a scene. He'd start the scene over again, or he'd just let the scene continue, uh, you know, as if it was a natural conversation. So, you know, it might start with words that he wrote on the script, but it would just continue on as a natural conversation. So all that, you know, made my job easier because of how dedicated everybody was. You know, my job was just to to kind of make sure that we stayed within the within the rules in a lot of ways that, you know, everybody was signing their their contracts, that everybody was still happy to to be a part of this and willing to do what it takes to to get the project done. And and look, you know, we had really long days. We had you know, we all hustled really hard. And then when we finished, we took a huge step back and let Keith review the footage for, you know, six months. And then Keith came back to me and said, I want nine more days of shooting. <laughs> oh, crap. And I've got things I want to shoot again. I've got new scenes I want to add in. And uh, we had to relook at the budget and look at the money we had. And we, we, you know, because we had investors, we couldn't raise the budget because we, you know, you can't ask an investor to, you know, invest in a budget and then you raise the budget, their investment is diluted. So right. we said, okay, how can we rearrange this money so that we can still get it done? We sat down and we figured it out and we went out and, and we shot those extra days, you know, and, and then it was, it was a hustle to get the, to get into the right film festival, it premiered at the Tribeca film festival, but they were so behind the film. They loved it so much. They helped us get into the Venice film festival. Uh, they really just backed us in, in a great way possible. And yeah, I was looking at the press for it. And like, as far as like the festival circuit, like it was getting a lot of acclaim and I was like, Oh shoot, I know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> it was really great. I mean, it was like, when we got into Tribeca, Jenna Terranova, who uh, was the head programmer for Tribeca up until yesterday, <laughs> but Jenna's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, Jenna called me. I think we submitted the film on December 28th, which was an extension. It was, I think, as late as we possibly could have submitted it. 
And Jenna called me on January 3rd. So she waited, you know, five days and she watched the film, which is pretty amazing. But I think they were just really excited because they liked Keith's previous film and my previous film, Sun Velvet Morning, had played at Tribeca. And so Jenna called me on January 3rd and she said, we love this film. We want it. And it was really early because they don't really start making announcements until like late February. And we we're like, wow. Um, okay. And she was, we were like, you know, because it was so early, we said, okay, let, let's just think about it for a minute. And she called us back like two days later and she was like, we want to give it a big premiere on a, you know, I think it was a Friday night. And, and she just offered us all these wonderful things. We're going to, we're going to back it. We're going to help you get good press. And, and she just made us feel really welcome in that, you know, at that festival, not, you know, we're not just going to be a film playing there. We're going to be a film that's really going to be featured. And right. Frederic, who's the artistic director and who came from, uh, from Cannes originally, well, I don't know where originally, but he had worked at Cannes and, and was very, you know, had a lot of influence at the European film festivals. He said to us, I want to help you get your European premiere. And we said, great, please do. And he got us into Venice, which is, you know, one of the top film festivals in Europe. Uh, and that was all him. I mean, obviously the film was the film, but that was like, he was the one who pushed it and got it in front of the right people. And, you know, then suddenly we were out there in Venice, you know, walking across the red carpets with all these fancy people and, and our little films. That was really special. <laughs> Which is like not bad for a guy in Brooklyn, you know, hanging out in France. And I guess it also kind of makes it worth it having to do, you know, those long hours and, you know, some occasionally awkward reshoots. That's fantastic. It's funny. Cause, um, Again, I, I, I don't want to take credit for this. I think I read this somewhere the other day, but uh, it said something like, uh, when your film premieres, when you're, when, you're, when you're going to festivals and you're getting all these accolades and you're drinking all this free alcohol, you, you get just happy enough and just drunk enough to forget how hard it was to get there in the first place and to say, okay, and do the next project. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get back to the next project and you're like, oh God, I'm doing it again? What? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait, mean I just can't keep doing these parties? Like, oh, crap. Yeah. It's just a cycle of like, everything's great. And then you're back in it. But uh, I don't think anybody likes being awake for 20 hours straight. But, um, you know, it, it's there's still it feels really cool to be pursuing something, uh, a story you want to tell and, you know, to really feel the part of an artist. You know, and especially as, you know, the, as a producer, we're often referred to as the suits. You know, we are in charge of the money. We are in charge of the logistics. We're in charge of people signing their contracts and and all that stuff that the creative people don't want to know anything about. They just want to make their movies. But, you know, we're creative too. And uh, yes, I was running around set and making sure people signed their contracts, but, you know, making sure people didn't spend too much on whatever. But I wanted to tell a great story. So it was something I could feel super proud of. And I love that. And hearing this story, it reminds me so much of the stories I hear about comic creators. You know, you talk about passion, you talk about how, you know, it's a collaborative effort. Absolutely. You know, I mean, you could you could do a comic, you know, by yourself, write a draw and everything else. But I think in order to really make a good project, you really have to have everybody sort of on the same page and really getting behind it. And not for nothing, especially um, talking indie comics, because that's usually, you know, my my forte and thing about indie films is that these days you kind of have to know a little bit of everything. You know, you may not necessarily always have all these, you know, pieces in place. So, you know, and I understand that as a creator, you're not always thinking about the business side of things, but it is really cool to have, like I said, a producer or someone who could pretty much organize that. Because honestly, as someone who's definitely, I guess, the, the artiste, you know, being super pretentious about it, you're not thinking about like, you know, the money or other things like that, or even just as far as how are we going to get everything organized? All you know is your art and your story, and you're not necessarily always looking at the other half of it. So, you know. 
you know, yeah, producers kind of get looked at in a certain light, but it's every bit as necessary. I, I think that there are a lot of people who can wear multiple hats, but there's certainly directors who, you know, will they want their shot or they they want a certain performance or, you know, and they're not getting it and 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 they'll just stay there for hours and hours and you know they don't they don't care what else it affects because they're in the moment and it's the producer who usually is the one who has to see the bigger picture like hey if you're going to spend six hours you know here by the time we get to the next location it's going to be dark and the story says it has to be daylight at the next location so you better spend three hours here and you just better deal with the performance (laughs) or you better cut that other scene at the other location and those are the things that you know we have to remind our directors of and um, and it's totally collaborative. I mean, you have an assistant director on set who's trying to keep you on schedule. You have a line producer usually who's monitoring the budget too, might come over and say, you know, hey, the, the craft service guy just bought $200 in Doritos. Uh, you better talk to him. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, hey, bud, that's, that's a bit much in Doritos. Can you? <laughs> Why do I feel like that's actually something that happened by experience? Because I'm like, how many Doritos can you possibly buy? <laughs> I, I, I think actually the only uh, – the only <laughs> I, I've definitely had some food, interesting food stuff. Like, um, you know, we've had catering bring way too much food, and we realize, like, um, gosh, I'm, I'm going to give up a trick right now. Hopefully, there are no caterers listening. But, you know, if, if you have, let's say, 30 people on set, you usually order food for 20 because a caterer usually brings so much food. You know, and you always want to have enough food. You never want to have people starving. Right. But, I mean, if you want to leftover food that you're throwing stuff out, that's just that's a waste of money and that's really sad and a waste of food. Um, so yeah, you always way under order for the amount of people if you're dealing with a caterer. Uh, but I did also have an, an instance once where um, we let the caterer go early. We were going overtime and we just said, you know, we're just going to order pizza for dinner tonight. And whoever was in charge of ordering pizza ordered so many pies. And when I questioned him on it, he said. Oh, we're uh, 30 people. I ordered uh, 15 pies. I'm like, it's half a pie of pizza for everybody. How many people you know who eat, who eat four slices of pizza for dinner? Um, have you met me? <laughs> okay, some people, but not the majority of people. <laughs> we were... I was like, why did that, you call that me? That all ended well. <laughs> Adrian, I should have. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> but it ended really well because I was like, well, there's all this leftover pizza. I'm going to bring it home. And I was walking home with four pies of pizza from my car. And I'm walking down my block in Brooklyn. And two guys walk out of my building, and uh, they turned out to be my my neighbor's uh, brothers. I didn't know them at the time, and they thought I was the pizza guy. And they're like, oh, we ordered pizza? And I was like, uh, and then my neighbor came out, and he's like, oh, it's Daryl, guys. They're like, oh, you're the neighbor. You brought us pizza? And they were all super stoned. And I was like, you know what? Yes. Here are your four pies of pizza. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> nice you're not only a producer you're also a humanitarian see <laughs> yes absolutely i felt very good about that although i don't think they ever remembered it so i brought it up to them later they're like that didn't happen i'm like see you're too stoned to even remember that i gave you free pizza <laughs> look you know what i always remember having pizza you know that's just one of those things that, <laughs> that must have been bad that's hysterical <laughs> See, and these are the things that a producer will sometimes have to deal with. See, you never know what your job is going to entail. You never know. <laughs> of course, obviously, you're cemented in filmmaking, and that seems to be where your focus is. But having worked on Devil's Doing Dreary, is there ever any thought of possibly maybe working on another comic book-related project? Absolutely. For one, I really enjoyed it. I would probably avoid making the same mistakes we made. You know, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't make a whole slew of new mistakes. I mean, I think if I was going to do it again, I'd probably try to self-publish. You know, we worked with a publisher and uh, 
you know, I just feel like I've got a better idea on how to do that now right. on my own. No offense to the publishers out there. I think those guys are doing a great job and they have hard jobs, but I think that would be part of it. There, there are a lot of other stories from Dreary alone. So, you know, we're, we're going to turn Dreary into a movie, but you know, the plan is to always go back and write more comic books on Dreary. So I would definitely do that. And, and as far as doing another comic book that has nothing to do with Dreary, um, yes, I would, but I, I think there would have to be money there. Like, I think one thing I, I would not want to have to be in charge of again is finding money for a comic book because there are comic books that make a lot of money, but I think, I think for the most part, you're hoping to kind of break even make and make, or make a little bit of money. And, you know, that being the case, it's pretty hard to entice an investor. So, you know, like if somebody came to me and said, I've got an idea, I've got this amount of money and I felt that I can make it for that money, I'd be all in. I'd really enjoy to, to work on a comic book again. Awesome. Thanks so much for hanging out, man. And I know we're hitting time because, you know, the game's about to start. So, I mean, there's a million other things I want to talk to you about because as someone who does love film, you know, there's so many more questions I have. I love talking about film and I feel like I would love to do this again. If you would have me back as a guest and want to, you know, spend another hour talking about film, I'd love to. Hell yeah. (laughs) Like I said, hey, let me know whenever you're free. We can make it happen. Absolutely. (laughs) But before you go, please tell everybody where maybe they could find more information about you, some of the films you're involved in, any like social networking sites or anything else you feel like plugging before we head out. Absolutely. I, I appreciate you saying that. So The Devil is Doing Dreary. Uh, the easiest way to get it is to go to our website, which is thedevilisdoeindreary.com, and just click on the shop button, and uh, you can pick it up there. It's $10 for the graphic novel, so, you know. It's worth so much more than that, <laughs> you know. We're, and we are uh, we're currently revamping the site, so it's not perfect right now, but it works. And hopefully, actually, it'll be finished. Kelly Vandilla has been magical with our website, so hopefully, he'll be finished in a few days. Anyway, and then obviously, you can follow the Devil Is Doing Dreary on Facebook, and you can follow me on Facebook. Anybody who friends me and says that they listen to this podcast uh, or that they're friends with you, Adrian, I will happily be their friend. Uh, so just friend Daryl Frymark. As far as my films go, Five Star is currently available on Netflix. Although I think for just a few more months, I'm not I'm not sure where it's going to pop up after that. But uh, and, and obviously, it's available on iTunes and DVD and and all those places you can rent it. And uh, Some Velvet Morning, which was uh, another film that I did that I'm very proud of, also available on uh, for rental in a bunch of different places. But uh, that that movie lives on Amazon. And uh, my first movie, Allegiance may only be available for rental at this point. I'm not sure that we're on any streaming sites anymore. Uh, I think Allegiance is no longer on Netflix, but uh, you can certainly rent it. So that's where you can find everything. And, you know, I'm always posting on my Facebook about what's coming up and what I'm working on. And so, yeah, I mean, I've got uh, I've got a bunch of things coming down the pike. Awesome. Daryl, thanks so much. And I'm so glad we got a chance to catch up. We have to do this again. You know, sorry we couldn't just hang on the phone for hours and hours. No worries. You know, Game 7 of the World Series, man. Pretty exciting. I'm going to probably piss off a lot of people saying this. I mean, as a Mets fan, you know, I kind of have the horses in this race, but yeah, I kind of want to see if the Cubs will clinch this one. So even though I won't be watching it, I'll be staring at like the website and just watching the live update and <laughs> kind of like, you know, biting my nails a little bit because this is pretty intense. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I, I have a feeling this is going to be pretty epic. <laughs> which obviously by the time this comes out, um, dang, I can't believe insert team name here lost or yeah, that was so awesome that they won. So there you go. <laughs> now we're... <laughs> Oh, boy, that'll do it for us for this episode of Adrian Has Issues, and we'll see you next issue. 
Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please be sure to visit adrianhasissues.com to stream or download our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at Adrian Has Issues, on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Satchel Podcast app, available on iOS and Android. Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Nerdsloth Network, home to such great podcasts as Nerds on Tap, Cinefreak Critique, and Saturday Morning Cartoon Boom. Visit them at nerdsloth.com.